0: today we're talking about the covenant of redemption. So typically we followed a pattern of seeing the context of a covenant and then seeing the covenant itself and then moving on to the result and sort of what to expect after. But this covenant of redemption, even though it's called covenant, is not exactly like the other covenants. It's also by some been called a council of peace. That's a a phrase that comes from the, the minor prophets describing sort of what this covenant is or what this, um, this event is. And we're getting from uh, historical events in time and space with real people to now this is a covenant or an agreement or a resolution, sort of a divine determination to to do something significant within time and space within creation. So we're moving into that period of sort of uh, difficult things to talk about. When you talk about the Trinity that our language has to be very precise and specific, talking about one God who has three persons that are equal in nature, but they're distinct from each other. That sort of language gets, gets very confusing. We're also talking about a time of uh, before the foundation of the world. So this isn't necessarily a specific time and place where the Godhead said, okay, let's do this, and you go do this, and here's the big plan. But it's a sort of way that God reveals to us here's what I did, here's what I established before the world's foundation to take place during this world and then on into the age to come. So one underlying thing of, of this covenant to remember, the reason why historically Reformed Baptists have held to this view of the covenants is a covenant of redemption establishes permanently that, the, that God's saving work through Christ has always been plan A. That's always been God's plan is to use Christ to send Him at the right time to redeem a people for Himself. That we can ask ourselves a question to sort of uh, ponder this covenant and its necessity. And is that the best way to understand it? Is that would Christ coming make sense without this um, act of the the Godhead? Would Christ coming make sense if we just started with Adam and went on from there? That if there was no determination before the world began that. Would all of it really, you know, be coherent? Would it would it make sense to us looking back in time? Uh, this, is, this covenant of redemption is, is what we'll call it, is the basis for all future saving work. So there's this idea that this is the foundation that God established and played out over space and time, that this is how he would bring the Messiah, that he would redeem the people for himself. That we've talked about a covenant of grace that's finally realized in the Christ's coming and His death and burial and resurrection, that the Old Testament saints from Abraham on looked forward to that covenant, looked forward to that promise that they're saved by grace, even though they were in in a temporal sense the old covenant. That Christ came and He endured the penalty of the law that God set on, that was caused by Adam's disobedience, and by that. Uh, obedience of Christ to go to the cross that he earned or he merited the blessings and the benefits of the covenant of works, that God's promise of life and of land and of uh, communion with him unbroken by sin is realized through Christ's redeeming work. And so the covenant of grace then is is founded, it's rooted in, it's established in the covenant of redemption. So we're not going to follow the typical pattern of, of the way we have in previous lessons, what I would like to do, because the language is so specific, because it's so technical, it's precise, it's so shrouded in mystery, even though we have Christ's coming already taking place, I want to read several passages of Scripture, and we'll make some brief comments along the way so that you can hear not as much from me in my own words, even though I have studied this, but from God's Word of what He says about what took place even before the world began. 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you have your Bible, I will read verses 8 through 10. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, Who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ from all eternity. So you see that that Paul's gospel, Paul's action in the New Testament of of sending Timothy, of going from church to church, of spreading this good news of Christ to all the churches. He, in God's providence, looking at the Old Testament and, and all the talks with the apostles and all the different things, that he recognized that it wasn't like Christ appeared on the scene um, in whatever year he was born and then had his life and then died, and that was the beginning. But Paul saw the root of his ministry established even before the foundation of the world. He says, it was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So he's talking about that time in eternity past or before the world's foundation where Something happened that we weren't there, we don't know, but we have glimpses of it in the scriptures. And this is where he, Paul reveals an understanding of the covenant of grace or of the new covenant or simply of Christ's coming, um, being rooted in that time before the world began. Verse 10 says, But now this thing that was granted in eternity past, but now this has been revealed by the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Christ's saving work his his coming and his dying in our place, it brought light. It brought eternal life to us. Turn over one book with me also to the book of Titus. We'll be in Titus chapter 1. I'll, I'll just read a few verses again. So we're going to read verses 1 through 3 and it's easy to sort of skip over these as familiar as oh yeah, we've it's just Paul saying Hello, and then he goes on to the meat of the letter later. But in these first three verses, we have so much that Paul reveals writing to Titus. In verse 1 of Titus chapter 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And then he says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even in his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So you see almost the same thing as Second Timothy, just in different words, in a different form, to a different person. Paul sees his, his gospel that he proclaims, that he's so eager to, to get to the world as being rooted in eternity past, in ages ago, as promised by God and realized in Christ. If you've studied anything previously about the covenant of redemption before, or you've thought about what happened uh, in eternity past, you've probably looked at some point at Ephesians chapter 1. So turn there and we'll go through these first few verses uh, rather quickly, but just to to read this, to get it out there as we think about what God has done. So Ephesians chapter 1, I'll just read a few verses, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So you see Paul thinking about, okay, now, you know, temporally, in space and in time, right now, as he's writing to the Ephesians, he says, God has blessed us if we're in Christ. God has blessed us in Christ. So somehow our faith in Christ grants us the blessings that Christ earned. So we have these these benefits of our salvation that were accomplished by Christ but he doesn't stop at the temporal and the immediate things now he goes back in time he says just as he chose us in him god chose us in him the son before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him so whatever you think about you know predestination about god's sovereignty about man's responsibility you whatever you settle on as your interpretation your theological position You can't skip over this verse. It says that he chose us in him before the world's foundation. That however it works out in reality, however God's sovereignty uh, fits with our responsibility to repent and believe of our sins, to look to Christ for salvation, we're chosen in God. We're secured in God. Our faith is united to this God who loves us and who chose us. That before the world was here, before we were created, before we were born, that God acted on our behalf to set his divine love upon us in Christ. It says in verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So there's all kinds of things we could get into about God's will and his intention and what he actually does. We see in some places of scripture where it talks about God desiring for all men to be saved, to come to a knowledge of truth. But here we see that God's kind intention of His will it results in real adoption. So we saw the language in the last episode of of where David and and God that they had the covenant together, and they were talking about how God said, "Your line and you and the ones to come after you, it'll be a father son relationship." So instead of it being this 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 God and this covenant uh, making God with these people, and it being just a creator and creature distinction we see now that it's moved beyond that there's there's nothing more intimate or personal or loving than the expression that god gives to us as our father in us his children and then lastly verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved so god's glory is manifested through sending his son and it's poured out freely it's given to all that god says All who will repent and believe can have this adoption as sons, are chosen by me before the foundation of the world, that they can enter into my kingdom, that they can enter in to rest with Christ. They can enjoy these benefits and blessings of people in in God's mysterious providence that we can be saved by works, but not by our own works. It's by the works of another. It's the Messiah that's come. It's the man, Christ Jesus. The last set of uh, verses that I want to look at are in the book of Isaiah. So if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. So this is kind of a a strange jump for us to go from Paul to Isaiah. There was more than 700 years that separated the two, but there's a set of songs or a set of um, descriptions that we have in Isaiah that theologians call as a group the servant songs. And what they are, you're probably familiar with, for example, Isaiah chapter 53, talking about the suffering servant, about God crushing the servant and it being pleasing to him. But here we have before that, in chapter 42, it's a set of God talking about the servant. And then later on we'll see the servant talking about himself. It's this picture that God paints. It's this sort of divine mission that we have of of. God's going to send his servant to accomplish his purpose and to give him his spirit so that he will carry out what needs to be done. So there's three parties in this sort of relationship. It's the three persons of the Trinity, but it's Yahweh or the Lord as as we have it in our English Bible sometimes. It's the Lord's servant, so the servant of the Lord, and it's the spirit of the Lord. So the Lord, the Lord's servant, the Lord's spirit. First, we have in chapter 42, we'll think briefly about the Lord. What will he do? What does he set himself to do? So verses 1 through 4, I'll read. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. In a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So that's a description of the servant that God, we see this in other servant songs in chapters to come that God says he will uphold the servant. That God has set this mission, so to speak, if he said, I want to redeem this people. That he says, I've I've got this task that must be accomplished. And the only way for that task to be accomplished is with the servant. So I'm going to give him everything that he needs for this task to be accomplished. We see God's love for this servant that he's going to send. That he delights in him. He rejoices in him. That even though God loves his creation, that it seems to be a, a special love for this servant. That he will uphold and he will watch over him. And he will give him a covenant people. Turn to chapter 49 now, and we'll continue reading about the Lord and his role, but also about the Lord's servant. So chapter 49, I'll read just two verses. In verse 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, In a favorable, favorable time I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you a covenant for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages saying to those who are bound, Go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will be fed, and their pasture will be on all bare heights. So that's sort of metaphoric language to continue to describe the servant and his purpose and what he'll do. But from our last text, from this text, from others, we see that this the servant will bring forth justice, that what is wrong in many ways will be made right through the servant that he's gentle, he's not going to break a bruised reed, but his tongue is as sharp as a sword, a a double-edged sword, that he has to have this combination in order to fulfill the Father's mission. Um, The servant earlier in this chapter, he describes himself as being called by God from the womb, that he's, um, even though he's the sent one, that he's not one who's looked on with favor, he's not like King Saul maybe, you know, great in appearance and noticeable from the rest. He's more like a King David who's lowly and gentle and not noticed and despised. It says that he will gather in Jacob. He will bring Israel back. But God declares in these servant songs, if you want to go read them more extensively, that it's not enough for the servant to come and just to bring Israel back in. But it's to gather in all the nations, to open up this salvation, this opportunity for life with God, uh, for communion with God, for this covenant with God, to be for all nations, to be open to all. And then lastly, we won't read any more from um, chapter 49, but we have the Spirit. So we've heard it mentioned briefly, he, the servant, is enabled by the Spirit. That God says, I will give him my Spirit, so I will put this this divine person in this Divine and human servant, who he will be helped by him. That God has the mission, and he says, Servant, I want to send you to accomplish this mission, and I'm going to give you the spirit to ensure that this will be accomplished. He leads, he guides, he directs Christ, the man on earth. That in one place it says that every morning, it says, morning by morning, that Christ is awakened, the servant is awakened, and he's led by the Father. He's led by the Spirit. He communes closely with him and fellowships closely with him. And so what's the the reward promised to this servant? Why would he want to come to earth? Why would he want to be obedient to the Lord? Why would he want to go and do all these things? Well, chapter 53 of Isaiah is the final servant song, and that gives us a a picture into what is to come. So verses 5 through 7 of Isaiah 53, you're probably familiar with this. It says the servant he was pierced through our through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the lord the lord caused the iniquity of us to fall on him the lord's servant he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that has led the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before it cheers, so the servant did not open his mouth. That's the the suffering that the servant endured to accomplish the father's mission. So you say, what's the what, what's the benefit? What's the blessing? What's the encouragement? What's the good thing that comes from the servant accomplishing this mission? The mission accomplished, the proof of it, the proof that it was pleasing to God is that God. Even though his servant was crushed to the point of death, he was raised again on that third day. He was exalted. He was lifted up. He's sitting now at the Father's right hand. And he has not just this reward for himself, but the Father has given the Son a people who benefit from the servant's work. Verses 11 through 12, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a great portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So God, the father sent God, the son to intercede for many that there was this this looming punishment that was due to us as descendants of Adam. God sent this second Adam who came and he bore the penalty of that broken covenant with Adam. He bore the, the full weight of God's wrath. And now that he has been resurrected, that he has life, that he's sitting in heaven ruling and reigning, he extends that life to all who will believe, to all who will rest from their works and rest from their trying to chase after God and say, Christ has done it all. I'm going to unite myself by faith to him. So if you have questions about this covenant of redemption, if you have questions about previous lessons or just in general, you know, I read this passage, I'm not sure what it means. If you're on um, our website, you can go to our contact submission page and you can ask a question. In our final lesson, lesson 12, we'll be sure and answer some of those questions. So thank you for watching. I hope that this was a blessing to you. I hope that you see that you can be assured of God's love for you. That if you are in Christ, that God chose you before the foundation of the world. So that if God loves you now and you're united to Him by faith, that it's not that God can stop loving you. Because there was never a time when God started to love you. That He's always set His eternal love according to His kind intention of His will to love the people who He drew out for Himself. So thank you for watching and God bless.